Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For Stuff You Missed in History Class listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. A favorite among HowStuffWorks staff, this book rewrites the history of North America in a well-researched and compelling way. That's 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann, available from Audible. To try Audible free today and to get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash history stuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash history stuff. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And with this episode, we're continuing on with our look into the life of William Chester Minor, an American man who became one of the most prolific contributors to the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. But from what we've seen of his life so far, he doesn't really seem to be headed in that direction at all. No. In part one of this podcast, we took a look at Minor's early life, how he came from an aristocratic family, he got a good education, he studied medicine at Yale and joined the Union Army as an assistant surgeon during the Civil War. And his life and career at that point seemed really full of promise, but his mental health went downhill after the war, and we talked about how that downward spiral may have been triggered by an incident during the Battle of the Wilderness in which he was forced to brand an Irish deserter on the cheek. After spending about 18 months in a hospital for the insane in D.C., Minor decided to head across the pond to England, where he could hopefully rest, paint, kind of calm his thoughts a bit, maybe earn back his reputation by connecting with the right people in London. But when we last saw Minor, he'd done nothing like that. No, it didn't go down that way at all. He had gotten off on the wrong foot by taking up residence in Lambeth, which was one of the seediest parts of London. And when we left off with part one of this story, he had just killed a man who he'd never laid eyes on before. So we're going to pick up at that crime, February 17th, 1872, just as the constables were reaching the scene, finding Minor standing there, gun in hand. And we should mention before we get too far into this that one of the sources of information in this podcast is Simon Winchester's book, The Professor and the Madman. One of our listeners actually mentioned it on Facebook, so it reminded me that I need to bring it up and talk about it a little bit. It's a really fascinating book. It takes a really in-depth look at Miner's story it's and some of the, the other characters definitive here. definitive work on his life, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. A lot of articles about Miner use this as a source, too. So even the other sources we use probably pulled from that to some extent. So moving on with the story, though. The man that Miner had shot was bleeding all over the street. Two constables tried to get him to a nearby hospital, but it was too late. They identified the dead man as George Merritt, who'd been a stoker at the Red Lion Brewery, which was something of a landmark in the area, even though the area wasn't that great. And he'd been there for eight years, which meant that he pretty much, he being a stoker meant that he kept the fires over which the beer was made burning. Um, obviously, that wasn't a glamorous job. This guy brought home 24 shillings a week, which wasn't a lot even back then. He was very poor, and he also had a wife and six kids and one more baby on the way. Yeah, so a lot of family relying on him. He was about 34 years old, and he did live in the area. And when he ran into Minor, he had been on his way 
to work at the dawn shift of the brewery. So it's about 2 a.m., heading out, runs into this guy on the street who ends up shooting him. So meanwhile, the constable who apprehended Minor, who was Constable Tarrant, had what was sort of a strange exchange with the suspect. He asked him, whom did you fire at? And Minor, who Tarrant described as really cool and collected, gave this bizarre response. He said, it was a man. You do not suppose I would be so cowardly as to shoot a woman. So not really the response he was probably expecting to get out of him. Um, Tarrant proceeded to take Minor down to the Tower Street police station, ask some questions. On the way, though, Minor started to say that the whole thing was an accident, started to give a little more reason, maybe more of what Tarrant had been expecting in the first place. He was just saying he'd shot the wrong man. He had been trying to defend himself from somebody who'd broken into his room, and he'd made a mistake. He was also saying a lot of other weird stuff on the way to the police station, too, so you could see how maybe the constable wouldn't quite believe him. He was asking the constable to search him. He was like, well, what if I have another gun? And the constable was like, well, please keep it in your pocket if you have another (laughs) gun. I mean, it was really kind of an odd sort of interaction that they had. But when they got to the station, Minor was formally arrested and charged with murder. Because he was American, the U.S. minister in London had to be notified, and the crime, which became known as the Lambeth tragedy, became an international incident. And Minor was 37 years old at this time, just to give you kind of a reference point. Okay, so at this point, Minor got put into the Horsemonger Land Jail and Scotland Yard got put on the case. So Minor himself wasn't really much of a help. I mean, this is no surprise. He wasn't much of a help with the investigation. He just continued to say over and over, it was an accident. You know, I I shot the wrong man. But when the trial started in early April, details about Miner's strange life started to surface through the help of various witnesses. His Lambeth landlady, for instance, came forward, Mrs. Fisher, and she said that while he was a very good tenant, he was kind of a strange fellow. He was anxious. He'd often demand to have the furniture in his room moved around and rearranged, and he was really, really afraid that people might break into his place. In particular, she said that he was very afraid of the Irish. He would always ask if she had any Irish servants working in the house or if there were any Irish lodgers staying there. In part one of this podcast, we mentioned Miner's delusions about Irishmen breaking into his room at night and how it was probably related to that branding incident during the Civil War when he had to brand the Irish deserter on the cheek. And we talked about how he'd already contacted Scotland Yard about this. During the trial, a Scotland Yard detective named Williamson, in fact, came forward and testified that Miner had come to him three months earlier, complaining that men were trying to come into his room at night and poison him. Specifically, Miner believed the intruders were members of the Finian Brotherhood, militant Irish nationalists, and he thought they were planning on murdering him and making it look like a suicide. And other people, you know, people who had met Miner and spoken to him before, did have a suspicion that something was off with him. Williamson, the guy who Miner went to, wrote in his notes from that time that Miner was clearly insane. But there was another aspect to Miner's delusions as well. Another man who testified at the trial was William Dennis, and he was an employee at London's Bethlehem Hospital for the Insane. We've talked about maybe doing a podcast on on that at some point. But his job was to watch Miner at night when he was 
was in jail. And Dennis said that every morning when Minor would wake up, he would accuse Dennis of having been paid to molest Minor during the night while he was asleep. And Minor's stepbrother, George Minor, would later confirm these delusions about sexual abuse, saying that for the time that Minor was home before he left for England, he would often accuse people of trying to break into his room and molest him at night. So it wasn't just this fear of somebody breaking in or the Irish trying to get him. There was this whole other aspect to it. Yeah, the sexual aspect of his delusions. And I think that's why some people relate sort of his mental illness or maybe relate the beginning of his mental illness to um, the lascivious thoughts that we mentioned in the first part of this podcast that he used to have about girls in Sri Lanka when he was growing up, that maybe and that was an concern in- over it, too. Exactly. Maybe that was an early indication of mental illness, I should say. So Minor himself pretty much confirmed this aspect of his delusions when he was interrogated, too. He testified that on the night that he killed George Merritt, he woke up suddenly and saw a man standing at the foot of his bed. So he reached for his Colt service revolver, which he kept under his pillow while he slept, and he said that the man saw him reach for his gun and then took off and ran down the stairs and out of the house. Minor followed him and then saw a man running down the street, thought it was the intruder, fired four times, and shot him. That's his side of the story anyway. It was really our poor brewery employee. But the final decision in the case was determined by the McNaughton rules, which were named for somebody who had shot a man and was acquitted on the grounds of being insane. And the jury in Miner's case determined that he was also of unsound mind when he had committed the crime. So the ruling was not guilty on the grounds of insanity. And the judge told him, quote, you will be detained in safe custody, Dr. Miner, until Her Majesty's pleasure be known. So we already know where Miner was sent from the story at the beginning of of our first episode. The detention was set to take place at Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane in the village of Crowthorne in the county of Berkshire. And he was known there officially as file number 742 and was expected to spend the rest of his life there as a, quote, certified criminal lunatic. But we need to describe what his life really was there. It was more than just being a number and a, quote, certified criminal lunatic. Yeah, it's it was better than you might expect. He got to Broadmoor on April 17th, 1872, and according to that account kept by the Berkshire Record Office that we mentioned in the first part of the podcast, he was described at the time as a thin, pale, and sharp-featured man with light-colored sandy hair, deep-set eyes, and prominent cheekbones. He was considered to be low risk, so he ended up in cell block two, which was known unofficially, I guess, as the swell block. It I was, like that swell block, cell block. <laughs> it was the lowest security cell block, and it's where prisoners had the most privileges. And since Minor was well educated and a well to do American, he got special treatment there, special freedoms and comforts that a lot of inmates probably didn't get. Almost as soon as he got there, the American consulate in London, for example, made sure that Minor was reunited with his possessions, including his own clothes, his art materials, and his diary. They didn't send him with his surgical instruments, though. Good they call. kept those. Don't send a bunch of scalpels over to the guy in the <laughs> insane asylum. But he also had some money coming in. He had a regular allowance from his family, which gave him the ability to buy stuff or have the hospital purchase things on his behalf. And 
that made his food a lot better. You know, he'd have poultry and game, steak, biscuits, coffee, sometimes even wine and spirits. But it also allowed him to keep his mind occupied. This was an intellectual man, and he was able to purchase newspapers, engineering papers. He might have used those to get some tips on the sturdy building construction because he was, of course, still extremely troubled by these delusions of people breaking into his room at night. Um, At one point, he supposedly even had his bedroom floors covered with zinc to keep the demons from coming up through the floorboards while he was asleep. He would also get a lot of books, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second, but many of these books he would have shipped from New Haven, Connecticut, or ordered from shops in London, and at some point during his stay there, probably pretty early on from what we can tell, Miner was also given access to two cells, a separate day room in addition to his bedroom, and he converted that day room into a kind of library lined with bookshelves. So overall, he had this pretty comfortable existence at Broadmoor, considering the circumstances, and he received visits from family and friends, and he'd occasionally dine in the superintendent's home. According to Winchester's book, he even received visits from Eliza Merritt, who is none other than the widow of the man he'd shot. She'd supposedly forgiven him after Minor settled some money on her and her children, but whether or not this actually happened is still up for debate. So Miner might have just been in this situation with his two cells, all of his books, his newspaper, his engineering papers, spent the rest of his days there unknown. But one day, around the summer of 1880, while he was reading some of that material, he came across this sort of press release, and it was called An Appeal to Readers, and it was in a book that he'd ordered from a library in London. So it was basically this request for English-speaking volunteer readers around the world to help out with a massive publication project that was going on at Oxford University, which at the time was going to be called the New English Dictionary, and it was intended to be the biggest, most thorough collection of English words yet. So they needed, there was a soliciting some help for their new dictionary they were writing. Yeah, so it seems Miner immediately realized that he was kind of in the perfect position to contribute here, seeing as how he had tons of time on his hands to read, and he could get new books pretty much whenever he wanted. So he wrote to James Murray, who'd taken over as editor of the Dictionary Project in 1879, and he's the one who had drafted that press release we just mentioned, and asked if he could help out. And as we mentioned in part one to this podcast, uh, James Murray ended up being the Oxford English Dictionary's editor for 40 years and was also its greatest and most famous editor. He's a really interesting character and probably deserves a podcast in his own right, though. He was around Miner's age, very intelligent, and he loved learning, but he came from a poor family and had to quit school at 14. So he was basically self-taught, which I think is pretty amazing considering all he accomplished. And I mean, by self-taught, you mean he knew lots of languages and a strong not just like he was an informed man. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He was very highly regarded for his knowledge. But of course, we're focusing on Miner's story here. So we'll just tell a little bit about the dictionary so you'll understand exactly how Miner was helping out from his cell in Broadmoor. So this Grand Dictionary Project actually started in 1857 with three members of London's Philological Society, Richard Trench, Herbert Coleridge, and Frederick Furnival, who saw some serious deficiencies in the dictionaries that had been published so far, including those by Webster, which we talked about a little bit in the previous podcast, Samuel Johnson, and Charles Richardson. They had two main problems with these existing dictionaries. 
on one hand, they didn't think that they were comprehensive enough. For example, some just included very difficult words. So words you would need to look up in the dictionary. Exactly. And they felt a dictionary should really include every word in the English language. They also felt that every word, along with a definition, should have an authoritative etymology. So quotations from literary passages that would illustrate every meaning of every single word, including, and this was a key point, one meaning, one quotation, I should say, that illustrated the word's earliest known usage in English. So try to wrap your mind around that for a minute. I mean, I think that's important before we go on. Imagine trying to find that earliest usage through every book (laughs) printed in English and not have any sort of search engine capabilities, of course. Real people would have to go through these books reading and looking for the words. So, of course, since there would be a lot of words included and each word might need the support of several quotations, there was no practical way that a dictionary staff could handle all of that on their own. So the plan was to involve these unpaid volunteer readers, enthusiastic readers, I guess, from all over the English-speaking world. And that was the the announcement that Miner saw in the paper for the book. So in that article in The Nation by Joshua Kendall that we referenced in the previous episode, he compares it to, quote, what we now know of as the wiki model of creating and disseminating knowledge, which I think is a really cool way to think about it. It makes it all make sense when you think about it like that. Yeah. Because we do have this modern way to, to look at it, to compare it, something to compare it to. Yeah, wiki without the Internet. Exactly. So for a number of reasons, real work on the dictionary didn't get going until Murray came on board in 1879, and even then it was really slow going. For example, it took until 1884 to publish the first volume, which was A to Ant. <laughs> so very slow. Very slow going. But still, this wiki model of um, collecting illustrative quotations was pretty successful. You know, they were getting a lot of real work done. And they ended up getting millions of contributions from volunteers in England, Ireland, Scotland, and the United States. People who would send in quotations from books and magazines and newspapers. And like we mentioned, you know, they were trying to go for the earliest known use. Some of these went back as far as the ninth century. And it was to this aspect of the dictionary that Miner was contributing. So he didn't really do any defining like he had done for Webster's. But as we've mentioned several times, he did become one of Murray's best contributors. He'd send in these small cards with quotations on them by the thousand and eventually more. His personal library contained a lot of rare 16th and 17th century books in particular, and he'd search through these for appropriate quotes. And he even went a step further and would sometimes ask the OED editors what word they were working working on and then find quotes to go with those specific words. And I mean, just thinking about that makes my head hurt. <laughs> you would get a list, maybe a short list of a few words they were working on and then go look through your entire library for that word. I just I can't imagine. So in 1899, Murray said that Miner had sent in, quote, no less than 12,000 quotes and added, quote, So enormous have been Dr. Miner's contributions during the past 17 or 18 years that we could easily illustrate the last four centuries from his quotations alone. So it's no wonder that Murray really wanted to meet Miner along the way, this guy who was contributing so much to the dictionary. 
But their first meeting probably didn't take place quite like that dramatic legend that I think I compared it to Wilkie Collins. It sounded like a Wilkie <laughs> Collins setup um, that we related at the beginning of part one of this podcast, um, the one that was published in The Strand in 1915. That sensationalized account has the two meeting in 1897 after Minor failed to attend the Great Dictionary Dinner which sounds fun, thrown at Queen's College in Murray's honor to celebrate the dictionary's progress. And according to that legend, this was the first time Murray realized that his favorite contributor was actually an inmate in a mental asylum. But Winchester's research kind of turned up something different. Yeah, both through his research and the discovery of a letter written by Dr. Murray in the Broadmoor archives, we can see that Murray, though he might have thought that Minor was just a retired doctor or a doctor in the asylum at first, he probably was clued into Minor's actual situation by the late 1880s and probably visited him as soon as 1891 rather than 1897. Murray was always really sensitive to Minor's situation, though, apparently never letting him know that he knew that Minor was mentally ill. So the two formed this kind of friendship that went beyond their working relationship. Murray even visited Minor on several occasions, though it's unclear, according to the Broadmoor records, exactly how often that occurred. Murray would supposedly telegraph ahead, however, to find out what Minor's exact mood was before visiting, and he would avoid coming if Minor was especially angry at the time. But when he did visit, they had these very uh, cozy experiences, kind of like two well-respected colleagues hanging out together. Murray and Minor would sit in Minor's day room and have some tea and have some cake in front of the fire, just like it was a normal kind of situation, just catching up. Friends hanging out. So you'd think that maybe this friendship and having a purpose in the form of his dictionary work would have been really good for Miner's mental state. But his paranoid delusions just continued to get worse. He'd think that he was being drugged at night with chloroform or tortured with electricity or kidnapped from the asylum at night to be abused. So that nightly sexual abuse was still a big part of it. And he'd even tried to barricade his room at night to protect himself. And around the turn of the 20th century, on December 3rd, 1902, to be exact, he experienced a major setback. That morning, he actually mutilated his own genitals, and it seemed to be a desperate attempt to kind of put a stop to the indecent acts that he thought he was being forced to do every night. When asked why he did it, he said he did it, quote, in interests of morality. So after that, he was kept in the infirmary for four months and then sent back to his rooms. But the delusions just persisted. And as the years went by, he continued to get worse mentally and work less and less. And also his health started to decline. So a lot of people, including Murray, began to petition for his release to his family. And at first, these petitions were denied. But the government finally relented in 1910 and then granted minors release and ordered that he be deported back to the state. So Murray, who had by that time been knighted for his work in the dictionary and his wife, visited Minor one last time right before Minor left the country on April 15th, 1910. And he brought along a court photographer to document this last, this final meeting between two friends and two really influential contributors to what was going to be a famous dictionary. Murray was accompanied back to the States on a steamer by his brother Alfred, but it was really a long time before he actually made it home to Connecticut. He 
he immediately went back to that hospital for the insane in D.C. that he was at previously, which is now St. Elizabeth's, and he spent almost 10 years there, kind of in the same way that he had lived at Broadmoor as a privileged inmate who still had nightly outbursts. So his problems kind of continued to progress. And in between, he would sort of spend his days reading and painting and doing, you know, his activities that he enjoyed, but still in ill health. Yeah. So by 1919, though, he was finally allowed to go back to Connecticut to be near his family. And he died there March 26, 1920. Um, You know, having been in prison majority of his life by that point, or the hospital, rather. So even though he lived this life of anonymity while he was locked away for so many years, his name is still pretty well known. It's still in the preface to the Oxford English Dictionary, in fact. Yeah, which ultimately that dictionary took 70 years to complete. It was completed in 1928, which was a decade after Murray's death. And I think I found I saw this in that Nation article that we mentioned. Give us some stats. Yeah, Elena. some stats to kind of boggle the mind. In the end, the first edition, not including the supplements that were published after, but that first edition published in 1928, had 414,825 headwords, so to speak, defined by 1,827,306 illustrative quotations over 15,490 pages. Pretty incredible. <laughs> Very incredible. And it sounds like Minor was a pretty significant part of all of that. So in recent years, consequently, more people have taken an interest in his life. And, of course, there's Winchester's book that you mentioned in the beginning. And there's maybe even going to be a movie. Do you have any more info on that? I don't have any more info on that. When you look it up, it just says that the movie The Professor and the Madman is in development. Apparently, Mel Gibson bought the rights to the movie in 1998. And they've gone through a couple of different directors, I think, and they're working on it. But I don't know when it's supposed to come out. But I think that'll be an interesting one to see when it does. Yeah, it sounds like it would be a fantastic movie, actually. I'm imagining the... (laughs) how you dramatize the dictionary writing scenes, though. Sort of like computer movies, they have to have scenes of, like, rapid typing, maybe page flipping through 16th century books. Yeah, you'll have to really make looking up words interesting. (laughs) But I guess hopefully we'll get to see that down the road. And as I mentioned, somebody did bring up this book on Facebook, so... We're going to just throw it out there again like we always do. If you guys have read any cool historical books or have any other ideas that you want us to podcast about, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook, of course, or at Twitter at Mission History. So I think I'm going to head off and start maybe planning a great dictionary dinner because that sounds really It just fun. sounds good. Yeah. You don't want to do the dictionary research, but you want to have the dinner, <laughs> oh, dictionary have dinner. The dinner. <laughs> maybe everybody could come as a word. Never know. That would be fun. Oh, I like that. All right. I'll invite you, Dublina. Thank you. Um, So if you're not going to go plan your own dictionary party, we do have an article written by uh, Molly Edmonds called How Can You Tell If You're Mentally Ill? And you can find it by searching for that title on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. 